0: Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. We began a new month this week. We started our new Song of Gathering and a new focus. This month, we focus on what it means to sow and to reap. I imagine many of you have heard that phrase before, right? You reap what you sow. That form is found in Galatians in the Christian scriptures, but there's another more pointed version in Proverbs that reads, those who plant injustice will harvest disaster. I suspect earlier versions than that even existed. And when I asked among my friends, this phrase exists in other languages as well. In Hindi, and Japanese, it's essentially equivalent. You reap what you sow. In French and Italian, the phrase that carries the same meaning is slightly different. Who sows the wind reaps the storm. This expression means that the actions we take, the things we do, they have meaning. They have impact, they have consequences. The idea being that if we plant good things, good things will come. If we plant bad things, bad things will come. This morning, as we gather together on this Sunday before the midterm elections, we gather aware that our actions matter, that the engagement and actions of our fellow Americans matter, that our choice to sow wind or calm helps to determine what comes next, a storm or a period of quiet. We take time to be quiet, to sit together in silence, meditation, Reflection, prayer, for each of you this time is used differently, I know. This morning, I'm going to invite you into this time with a guided meditation. So I'm going to ask you to settle into your seat, to let go of anything you're holding, place it to your side, to start to breathe deeply and slowly. If it feels comfortable to close your eyes, please do so. Relax your body and focus on your breath. Slow and deep, in and out. Now imagine that you hold a seed in your hand. Small. Maybe rough, maybe smooth, just a small bit. Of brown in your hand. Feel its barely perceptible weight. Imagine that right at your feet is a patch of fertile ground. You lean down to dig a hole, not too big, and place the seed gently inside. Using your hands, you cover it over with rich, warm dirt. And you sit down beside your seed. The sun shines and you sit. You water your seed, breathing deeply and slowly. you sit, watching the spot where you gently placed that new growth. Imagine it so slowly beginning to grow. One little shoot stretching up out of wet dirt. In the silence, keep breathing and watch as your seed. Was your seed the beginnings of a tree that will offer shade? Is it a vibrant red flower that brings joy through beauty? A vegetable plant that will feed the hungry? The beginning of a giant bush that will offer us all oxygen? What did your seed become? How did it transform the world? Take a deep breath. Contained inside each seed is what it needs to grow. It doesn't always work quite right, but so often it does. If we offer the best of ourselves and our resources, we can help be part of nurturing sustenance, beauty, and strength. We can be part of what is necessary for life. We can be part of change. Take a deep breath. may we continue to plant and to nurture with care and attention. Aware that in planting seeds for love, justice, compassion, and change, we can transform the world. So earlier this week, I read a very short piece about a state representative um, in Washington State. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Evidently, he's written a... very brief manual on how to, as Talking Points Memo's website, this is who had this article up, wrote, kill all non-believers and establish a Christian theocracy. This is a five-term state representative, and he's been circulating this document, which is titled Biblical Basis for War, which argues that demands should be made of the populace of this country That they conform to what he deems Christian values, that they follow biblical law, and that if they don't accept the terms, he recommends killing all the males. In defense of this document, which has been referred to the FBI, the state rep claims that the Mayflower Compact was a covenant between the pilgrims and God to spread Christianity. Our nation has a really complicated history when it comes to religion and government, On the one hand, for a long time, those in charge in this country have been Christian, and dominant culture still is, in many ways, Christian. On the other hand, so many folks who came here came because they sought religious freedom. On the other hand, many of those Christians in charge have spent centuries attempting to assimilate others into Christianity by force and coercion. On the other hand, we have firm rhetoric about the separation of church and state, and yes, we're up to four hands. It's not simple. It is complicated. I don't claim to be a constitutional expert by any stretch or even a historian of early American politics and religion, but what I am is an American with a vote who has grown up with this constant refrain about the separation of church and state and the tension of all the ways... The state engages with religion and vice versa. We swear on religious texts in legal courtrooms, right? There are American flags inside of churches. Under God is in the Pledge of Allegiance, and so on. You can, I am sure, imagine a hundred other ways the lines blur when it comes to this question of church and state. I think, honestly, that the strangeness of this relationship became most clear for me the first time that I went to vote. Through my life, I had been taught over and over that America is a democracy, not a theocracy, and that church and state are separate. So when it came time to vote, I felt a little confused because what I had learned in church was the seven principles, compassion, kindness, acceptance, welcoming, and there was no way I could see to cast my vote without my church coming into play a little bit. Of course, as I reflected, things became very, very clear. We don't mean to say that one's religion will never impact one's participation in government or civic engagement. We mean to say that this country is founded on the principle that our government will not interfere in an individual's right to practice their religion, and that no religious institutions will interfere either in the citizenry's right to have an independent vote or in the execution of a secular government. That doesn't mean that we check our religion at the door when we vote or that government can't recognize the value of religion in people's lives. But there's a really important part to that relationship. There's a clear caveat. The government's respect for religion should end when that religion calls for the reduction of, impeding of, or denying of another human being's rights. It's similar to what we often say in our Unitarian Universalist congregations. All are welcome here, but not all beliefs or behaviors are welcome. If your belief or behavior calls for the harming of others, for the removal of another's right to life or freedom, that belief is actually not welcome. Theoretically, this is how America works. You are free to practice your religion, exercise your right to believe, but when it infringes upon another when it asks you to kill all the males who don't conform to your belief system, then the government can indeed step in. The reverse holds in some sense as well. America wasn't designed to have a government devoid of values and morals, just devoid of any single religion taking over and running the show. These principles seemed clear to me then, and they remain clear in my heart, though of course there are any number of complex situations that require deep reflection about this, and I'm sure some of you will have some for me in coffee hour. But out there, I'm clear in here, but out there, it's rough out there right now. Our country is right now an ideological battleground on which the rights of real people are at stake. We have state reps writing how-to manuals for genocide and conversion. We've got folks consistently using biblical grounds for arguing against abortion using a narrow interpretation of Christianity to denigrate gay people, using the Bible as a basis for denying transgender folks their full rights. Thousands of children remain abducted and held in tent camps. Asylum seekers, among them small children, are being spoken of as if they were a gang of armed supervillains. American Indians in North Dakota and other places are being stripped of voting rights. The same is true across the rest of the nation, as people of color face laws designed to deprive them specifically of their rights. We have continued violence against people of color, continued anti-Semitism that goes unnoticed and unchecked so much of the time until an event like Pittsburgh. We have a continued impotence regarding gun laws. Our government turns a blind eye to human rights violations around the world. We prioritize militarization over relief and tax cuts for the wealthy over the aiding of the poor. The list could go on and on. In all of these cases, I truly believe that people, maybe not all of them, but many people arguing on the other side believe they're basing their positions on their values, that they're voting their religion and their morals in in their minds. I believe that. And yet from where I sit, they are erasing one of the fundamental truths of America, that your values can inform your vote, but your values aren't worth more than another's freedom. They aren't worth more than another's life. That's where the separation is so important. Our government was not designed to uphold some perverted understanding of Christian values, and I say perverted because I'm quite certain Jesus would be ragingly appalled, by what we're doing to each other in his name. Our government was designed to limit the reach of religion exactly for moments like this. Moments when deluded prophets have distorted religious truths in the name of fear and power and hate. There are so many horrible things happening, and I remember preaching the Sunday after this president was elected. I remember it vividly. And I remember preaching that we had to be vigilant because we don't realize what's happening until after it has happened. Across the Internet, there are arguments being made that we are in a very 1920s, 1930s Germany moment. We're in the slow but fast slide into fascism and authoritarianism. There are all sorts of charts that list out the hallmarks of dictatorship, the steps to it, and it's frightening to consider how far along we are. And I remember saying back then that we often we'll say to ourselves, it can't happen here, not in America. And then I think of that Milos poem, the idea that the end comes while we're going about our business, doing all the normal things humans do, telling ourselves it can't possibly be happening now. He wrote that poem in 1944 in Warsaw. And I imagine that white-haired old man he speaks of, too busy to actually be a prophet, who does his work of binding his tomatoes, all the while chanting to himself, there will be no other end of the world. I picture all of us, myself included, going on about our daily business, some of us disbelieving, others of us too busy to be prophets, muttering to ourselves over and over, there will be no other end of the world. I wonder often when that moment will come, that we stop Binding the tomatoes and business as usual ends so that the last resistance can begin in earnest. Too often we say to ourselves, not here, never here, we have checks and balances, too strong a foundation. I'm not actually sure how strong the foundation is. We can't stop being vigilant now. We can't stop worrying and working to ensure that America remains a democracy. There are people working, working for the good. This is a silly example, but Oprah was going door to door to Canvas in Georgia. Did anybody see this? Can you imagine you get a knock on your door and there's Oprah telling you to vote? It'd be so funny. Activists unfurled a giant trans flag in front of the on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Groups of faith leaders make trips to the border to leave jugs of clean water for immigrants. The voter turnout is expected to be Much higher than it normally is for a midterm. That's a good thing. In New York State, they're working to raise the age at which people are tried as adults in criminal courts. Tribal governments in North Dakota and elsewhere are pushing back against the voter ID laws that would limit their participation. Journalists are still, in spite of the threats to their lives, getting important stories out on media platforms that remain independent. Even corporations are banding together to take stands against discrimination and fear-mongering. Religious groups band together to show solidarity in the face of hatred. There's a lot of awful stuff going on, but there's also a lot of good, and I don't want you to forget that. There are a lot of people who still believe in those foundational principles, who believe that the ultimate American ideal is justice and liberty for all, even if we have yet to get it right. There are a lot of people working for the values that we teach here, that I try to preach here. Religious institutions are tax exempt. I know many of you know this. I state it again today because the status means that we have special rules we have to follow when it comes to politics. It's another one of these complicated places of church and state separation. Our congregation can only spend a certain amount of time in work that would be classified as advocacy. And I can't tell you who to vote for. Not that I would. See my earlier comments about religion and freedom. I can talk about issues, however. And so my job, I think, in this pre-election sermon truly is to remind you first and foremost to vote, every single one of you, and to vote that with that seminal American ideal in mind, and then to vote your values. Yes, to be a values-based voter. And I know that term has most often been claimed by the conservative right, but all of us are values voters, or we should be. We should all take that position. My internship supervisor, the Reverend Mary Catherine Morn, is now the CEO of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. And just the other day, she wrote There's an absence of our values in the actions, policies, and rhetoric of our leaders. Protecting the inherent worth and dignity of every human should be foundational to decision-making. In the face of these injustices, our moral compass directs us towards action. This November, we cannot be spectators. As we exercise our individual right and responsibility to vote, we live out our commitment to the values we hold dear. We have the opportunity to uplift human rights up and down the ballot, leading change at all levels in our communities, our nation, and our world. Now, look, I have a suspicion that in telling you to go vote, I am preaching to the choir. But I wonder how many of you have consciously defined yourselves in the past as values voters. How many of you think about the candidates or the questions on the ballot by checking them against the seven principles? Does this candidate uphold the ideal of affirming the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part? Does that measure up for consideration in your village or county ensure that the inherent worth and dignity of all people is kept forefront are you voting your interests or your values and those are the questions that i truly hope each and every one of you considers as you cast your vote on tuesday human nature too often leads us to vote for what is in our own best interest our own immediate best interest I have a sneaking suspicion that confusion about exactly what was in the best interest of white people in this country is partially what led us to this moment. Too often, our human impulse is to think about what will protect us, protect our status or wealth or power or children. But nowhere in our seven principles are we called to act in self-preservation or self-interest. Nowhere are we called to protect the status quo or our own privilege. Quite the contrary. The seven principles to which Unitarian Universalist congregations sign on are not a creed, they are not dogma, but they are a set of ideals for which we strive. A set of ideals that we believe, among others certainly, will bring us closer to the world we want to live in. In those seven principles, we affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Black, white, American Indian, trans, gay, poor, young, old, every single person, without presuming to determine that one is better or more worthy than another. We affirm justice, equity, and compassion in our relations with each other, being ruled not by greed or selfishness, but by justice and compassion as we interact with each other, even those who disagree with us. We affirm acceptance of one another and encouragement to growth, We believe that people can change and grow, develop new understandings, that forgiveness and redemption are truly possible. We affirm a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, that each of us can see the world and our experiences and derive meaning from that, a set of values and morals that may not match perfectly with the person next to us, but are viable just the same. We affirm the right of conscience and the democratic process. That no matter who we are, we deserve an opportunity to make our voices heard, to have a chance to help direct our own future and the future of our nation. We affirm the goal of a world community with peace, justice, and liberty for all. Acknowledging that our beliefs are valuable and are our own, but they do not supersede Peace, justice, and liberty for all. And we affirm the respect for the interdependent web of which we are a part. The earth, the plants, all of humanity is interconnected, and our choices have an impact across this vast world. That carries responsibility. These ideals can be measuring sticks as you head to the polls. Set aside what benefits you personally and front those seven principles. How will your vote affect others in your town, in our nation? How will your vote impact global relations, the environment? Take that seriously on Tuesday. I realize that sometimes it can feel disheartening as we look around, as we mutter to ourselves, all of us busy, not-profits. But when you look around, you truly do see that others are making a difference. And I want you to know, like deep in your heart, know that when you vote on Tuesday, you're making a difference. Luke Stevens Royer writes in that first reading, I make my mark with at least a shred of hope that something good will come from this. Marking my vote is like kneeling in prayer because neither will accomplish anything right away. But the purpose of both is to remind me of my deepest hope for the world that I'm trying to help create. We cannot ever give up hope that our voices matter, that our votes matter. We have to stand up for the things that we believe in. We have to make clear the values that our liberal religion teaches us and that those values are as valid as any other set of values. We have to adhere to the original vision of this country, imperfect and flawed though it is, that declared that all people, all people, have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not impeded by any interpretation of scripture or any distortion of religious ethics, no matter how fervent. When you vote, you are voting for the America that never has been but still can be. You're voting to create a better world of justice and compassion with a deep understanding of what community really means. When you're voting, you're acknowledging, as Stevens-Royer writes, that the who is me and us and we the people. When you vote, you're voting to save the world. Your vote is an act of resistance, of hope, of justice-making, and of love. I know many of you don't pray, but you damn well better vote. May the power of our voices, full-throated and proclaiming our values, help plant the seeds of justice for generations to come. Through our votes, our justice-making, our loving, and our compassion, may we be part of creating a better world. So may it be. May each of us honor our ideals and our privilege by casting our votes this coming Tuesday. May our voices be heard, may our values be uplifted, and may the ideals of this nation be upheld. May we sow seeds of love and justice and take one step closer to the world we long to see. Go in peace.